Hello and welcome to The Week in 60 Minutes, brought to you by Spectator TV and broadcast on Thursday, the 23rd of February. I'm Kate Andrews, the Spectator's Economics Editor, and your host this week. Coming up on the show... As Britain promises to send more arms out to Ukraine, what's become of the nation's hollowed-out army? Would the UK be prepared to fight in a war on the cheap? I'll be speaking to Andrew Roberts and the Right Honourable Tobias Elwood MP. Negotiations over the Northern Ireland Protocol are in full swing, with rumours of a deal coming soon. But can Rishi Sunak meet everybody's demands? And who will have to compromise? Arlene Foster is with me on the show. Shamima Begum has just lost her latest appeal to return to the UK. One Brit who knows her better than most these days is Andrew Drury, an extreme tourist who got to know her over the course of a year. He joins me on the show. Does religion have a place in politics? This week, Kate Forbes has been in the firing line over her personal beliefs. Has she been the victim of a witch hunt? Or does the public have a right to know what she thinks on topics such as gay marriage and having children outside of marriage? I'm joined by a member of her church, David Robertson. And finally, meal deals are a much-loved bargain in supermarkets, but in Wales there is talk of restriction. I'll be speaking to Lucy Dunn, who eats meal deals at least once, maybe twice a day. Before we get going, if you enjoy Spectator TV, then do subscribe to our YouTube channel. Just click the subscribe button at the bottom of this video and tap the bell icon to make sure you never miss an episode. And if you want to read more from The Spectator, then why not subscribe to the magazine? For just £12, you can get 12 weeks in print and online, and a free £20 Amazon voucher. Just go to spectator.co.uk forward slash TV offer to subscribe. The historian and author Andrew Roberts takes a look at Britain's hollowed-out armies for the cover piece in this week's magazine. As Rishi Sunak promises to send more weaponry to Ukraine, can Britain afford to restock at the rate it's sending out arms? Once seen as one of the strongest armies in Europe, what's now left of the nation's defense? To discuss, Andrew Roberts joins me now alongside MP Tobias Elwood. Andrew, thanks for joining Spectator TV. For the cover piece this week, you talk about how Britain is fighting the second Cold War on the cheap. How vulnerable are we? Uh, we're much more vulnerable now than we've been, um, I think, in my lifetime. It's a very worrying moment. Uh, it's extraordinary that the Secretary of State for Defence, Ben Wallace, has himself publicly said that the army has been hollowed out. We've lost 30 billion uh, in real terms in uh, defence spending over the last uh, years since the Tories came in in 2010. And I'm speaking as a Tory peer. Mm. You know, I'm, I'm uh, uh, not in any way criticising um, the government for this, but it is something that really does need to be changed quickly. Andrew, critics will say that we still have the strongest army in Europe. How would you respond to that? Um, well, we do, and we're not going to have next year, and certainly not by uh, three years' time when we're going to have the fifth largest, at least by um, defence spending. The Germans and the French are going to outspend uh, uh, us within the next three years. So uh, it's all very well for the government to say this, but you've got to look, of course, into the future. And you've also got to remember that there is a land war going on in Europe at the moment. Tobias, you were PPS in the Ministry of Defence between 2017 to 2019. You sit on or chair a host of committees related to defence. What are you seeing on the inside? I, I see us, I suppose, in a step back, being rather complacent over the last 30 years. I think we've become used to perhaps, you know, some skirmishes, some problems in the Middle East. But in general, since the end of the Cold War, uh, I think we've become a little bit timid, a little bit risk averse in standing up to some of the uh, challenges around the world. And I think they're now coming back to haunt us. We've got uh, a geopolitical shift in capability, uh, in uh, military might, uh, and uh, agenda as well. And I think this is coming to manifest itself in Ukraine. I don't think Russia, for example, would have invaded um, Ukraine had we not departed from Afghanistan. And I don't think that China would be doing what it's doing in the South China Sea and so forth if it didn't feel that the West was so uh, collectively divided uh, and unable to perhaps challenge um, these uh, larger countries from perhaps exploiting the limitations of our international rules-based order. Tobias, do you think the government has acknowledged the scale of the problem when it comes to the UK's capacity to defend itself and to defend other countries? 
No, not at all. And I think perhaps that's also a fault of myself and the government as well and others, perhaps commentators, in making the connection between, you know, what goes on in my constituency. Why is the uh, the price of bread gone up? Why is there a cost of living crisis? Why is energy prices gone up? And they are directly related uh, to some degree as to what's going on in Ukraine. The insecurity in Europe is a direct consequence to what's going on. Globalization as a whole has become much, much tougher as countries retreated, not just because of COVID, but also because of the general direction uh, of, of travel of where our, as I say, a fragile world is going, as security becomes more of a concern. So that justifies, if you like, spending more on defense, making sure that we have the resilience, we have the capability to look after our supply chains and so forth. Britain embraced globalization, arguably more so than other countries. And now we're recognizing the limitations of that or how vulnerable uh, we are uh, to uh, you know, changes, fluctuations, or indeed challenges to our accessibility to uh, the world. And I'd add to that, that it's in um, conscious that I'm sitting here with a historian, but uh, we are uh, perhaps in our DNA that as a nation, we step forward perhaps when others hesitate to challenge um, uh, the world uh, when it does go uh, awry. And I would lo love to see us rekindle that capability. We have convening power still, I think that soft power of being able to identify some of the problems, offer solutions, not necessarily doing all the heavy lifting, but certainly offering some of the, the you know, the way out, the direction of travel. Ukraine perhaps is a the first example where we've been pushing the envelope more. But at the moment, it's very, very difficult for us to then justify further de uh, defense spending increases unless, I say, we translate it into what goes on uh, into everyday livelihoods, because that will be affected in the longer term if we don't uh, you know, boost our security and our standing, our defense posture now. Andrew, tell me about the army itself. Are the armed forces strong enough at the moment? You note in your piece that 4,000 more have just been deployed to Estonia. Um, yeah, well, they're about to be an extra uh, 4,000, but they're protected by six heavy guns. Um, and uh, we don't have very many more heavy guns in this country, at least not ones that work. We've given 30, of course, to the uh, Ukrainians, and we were right to do that. That's a, that's a good uh, expense. But what we're not doing is building any more to take their place mm. at the moment. The Treasury have not uh, provided the money to do that, let alone the shells. We're down to about three days' worth of shells in this country if they're expended on the same kind of rate as the... Um, uh, both the Russians and the Ukrainians expel, expend them. And this is very worrying because um, it means that you can't essentially deploy forces abroad unless you're able to protect them. Mm. And talk us through that process of restocking weaponry. Where is it manufactured? How long does it take? Well, British Aerospace um, does a lot. Um, there's a, a plant in Wales that, uh, that does it. Actually, it doesn't take that long if you've got the money um, and the contracts that you can place. Uh, there is a discussion about how long these shelves uh, these shells have a shelf life right. uh, and that can be you don't want to uh, use you know shells that are coming up to their uh, their sell-by date as it were but nonetheless we are now down as I say to two or three days worth uh, and you can see from this war in Ukraine that is now one year old that uh, you need many more than that and again, you also have to spend about £10 million per heavy gun if you want a 155mm or a 105mm. You know, it's that kind of money. And the Treasury, which has been in complete control for the last 100 years, the power that it has over the MOD and um, all of the other big spending departments is so centralised now that you have to face the fact that uh, the Treasury has a very strange way of looking at, um, at defence. Firstly, it assumes that you can pretty much always cut because we're not in a catastrophe. And secondly, it has this, um, this approach where because some monies have been um, essentially wasted um, on, on um, systems that haven't turned out to work particularly well, that therefore they shouldn't be, the MOD shouldn't be given money for things like guns and uh, shells, which are pretty low-tech and which we know do work very well. Hmm. Tobias, this conversation keeps coming back to money, and there are calls for the Prime Minister and Chancellor to increase the defence budget as early as the next fiscal statement in March. Do you agree with that call to increase the defence budget? 
Yes, I mean, I've been saying this for some time now that we've now, because of where our world is going, uh, we need to move ever closer to a war footing. During the last Cold War, we spent up to about 4% of GDP on defence. Uh, and at the moment, we're at a peacetime level of about just over 2%. It's made more complex because of foreign exchange levels in inflation and so forth, which means that Ben Wallace, the Defence Secretary, is simply asking for 10 billion more just to stay at this level of capability. And as you've just heard there, there is huge concerns about our stockpiles, huge concerns about our supply chains as well. All the components that are made up in any complex weapon system come from across uh, the world. And some of them are obsolete. Uh, Star Streak, for example, is a very effective weapon that we've gifted to the Ukrainians. We actually stopped making this a couple of years ago. I visited the factory, the Talis factory in, in Belfast, and there's been no ask, no request indeed, going back to the Treasury, to say, let's make Star Street 2.0. To do that would cost 100 million just to get the supply chain, just to get the assembly line I guess the really, up and running. I again. guess the big question, Tobias, is, is where is the money coming from? You say simply 10 billion, but that is no small chunk of change at the best of times, and money is in very short supply these days. Uh, there's no doubt about it, but I, again, I go back to my original thesis that if we don't look after ourselves and provide the resilience and security for the nation uh, in alignment with our allies as well, I'm afraid the world's changing very, very fast indeed. It's becoming more dangerous. So it won't just be the MOD's budget that will suffer. Our economy as a whole um, will run into difficulties. We need to better recognize, and Germany has just done this for the first time since the Second World War, that economy and security are one and the same thing. You cannot distinguish one from the other. We cannot isolate ourselves in the UK and say, come on, let's focus on that money for hospitals, for schools and so forth, and, uh, and all this local expenditure. I perfectly understand the calls for that. But if you drop your interest uh, in security, then I'm afraid there are you know, countries out there with very different agendas today that will take advantage of our over-reliance, if you like, uh, on our international supply chain. We were, sorry, can I just, yeah, please. Can I just uh, add that Andrew. we've um, found, of course, uh, only today that there's been a 5.4 billion surplus in uh, tax revenues. Well, that could go straight into defence. That would be half of what Ben Wallace is asking for and what he needs. So it's not as though there is no money. And what we have to remember all the time is that Putin is spending 143 billion uh, dollars on, which is 30% of, uh, of government income in Russia, on defence and security. So, you know, whatever we spend, frankly, is going to be a tiny um, proportion of what he's spending. And this is a proper proxy war that is going on in Europe. But of course, Andrew, that increased tax take has been offset by near record high deficits that the UK is still running. And of course, the Treasury feel as though they're still trying to get their ducks in a row when it comes to sorting the public finances. Tobias started to hint at it there. You know, there's competition for money for education, for the NHS and for defence. What argument would you make to say that defence now needs to be the priority? The fact that it's been traded off again and again uh, ever since, well, long before 2010, as Tobias said, it's been 30 years essentially, that the um, that defence has been the poor man in this uh, in this battle. When you look at the amounts that are spent on, well, you mentioned health and education, which have uh, spiralled, again and again you see uh, defence being cut. Mm. And the reason that you need to do it is not just because of these sort of statements that all politicians make about about uh, defence being the first uh, priority of, of government, but actually you cannot fight a war uh, without heavy artillery. And we have got virtually no guns left in this country and three days supplies of shells. It should be a massive national um, worry and a disgrace and a scandal. But it simply isn't because uh, we have seen the Treasury slice back the defence budget for, as I say, three decades. Tobias, last question to you. Following President Zelensky's visit to the UK, there's been pressure on the UK to supply fighter jets and tanks to the front line. Is the UK in a position to do that, given its depleted army status? Well, it, it actually opens up a whole Pandora's box of questions there. Firstly, why did it take so long for us to gift the, the hardware, the tanks themselves, which is exactly what Zelensky had been calling for for some time? If we want to see Ukraine make progress, it's going to have to punch through that defensive line. 
and start to gain territory. That's why the tanks are needed. But tanks require top cover and uh, in order to give them the, the advantage. And that's where the fast jets come in. I would have been asking for air power rather than fast jets because actually, as we learn, it takes about four to five years to train a fast jet pilot. Not so simple th uh, thing to do. There are other ways that you can provide that top cover for uh, the tanks using Super Tucanos, A-10s, for example, uh, drone aircraft as well. If you have the skies, if you're dominating the skies already uh, because you've got great air defense, you know, the Russians are not using their, their air force, then you can use these uh, uh, other variants uh, of, of air power, which are not as good, absolutely make that clear. And they can happen in conjunction while you start training uh, your cadets your, uh, in the Western flight schools, which is what absolutely we need to do. But all this poses a bigger question as to what we're doing this for. What does victory look like? And that's not been clarified even a year after the invasion itself. And I think the West needs to come to terms with the fact this isn't just about Ukraine. This is Russia having a go at the West as a whole, probably um, uh, in alignment and support with China in the background, providing the weapons components that Russia needs to keep this going. This is much, much bigger than just Ukraine. And the quicker we put the fire out in the Ukraine, the quicker we can reduce inflation down to about you know, four to five, four to five percent, um, which will make it easier to then pay for all these other things that we've been speaking about. You get the grain coming out of Odessa, for example, that will help reduce the cost of living crisis. So again, it's in our interest to be less hesitant, less risk averse, stop being spooked by Putin and start to help Ukraine in the scale that they actually require it. Tobias and Andrew, thanks for joining me. Brexit negotiations are back, and it could be one of Rishi Sunak's greatest challenges in his premiership. The Prime Minister has the near-impossible task of meeting everyone's demands, balancing the red lines of the EU with protecting the sovereignty of Northern Ireland. A complicated topic, but with me now is Arlene Foster, former leader of the DUP, who has seen it all before. Arlene, thanks for joining Spectator TV. We are back to talking about the Brexit negotiations, yes. and we've been here before. Mm -hmm. uh, you know exactly what these talks are like. So what will be the main crux of the Prime Minister's talks with the DUP right now? Well, first of all, I'm glad to hear he's finally speaking uh, to the DUP, and I understand there have been numerous contacts now. Um, Although uh, I don't think they've seen any text as such, um, they're certainly been giving more we of a have sense as of where the negotiations are at. That this because fundamentally, um, if uh, the DUP, on behalf of their voters, and I think it's important to say that because people talk about the DUP as if they're some freestanding organisation, they have a mandate and they've been voted into this position. This is a position they went to their electorate with last year. Um, therefore, they have to be convinced that it's the right thing to do. And uh, they've set out their seven tests. They did that six months before they left uh, the executive. Nothing happened at all. There was no engagement. Uh, and since then, um, they've been really waiting for action, whether through the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill or through negotiations. Um, so at least now there seems to be progress being made, which is really good. Um, and I do hope that there's a continued dialogue uh, and perhaps even sharing of negotiation stances and texts, because that's what's needed. We know about the DUP's tests, but can you be a bit more specific as to what red lines cannot be crossed? Well, I don't think it's a question of red lines because I think everybody wants to get devolution back. And sometimes when I read some of the commentators over here and they say, oh, just go on without the DUP. Well, what would be the point of that? Because the whole issue is to get devolution back and to get the balance back into the Belfast Agreement again, because People are talking about the Belfast Agreement um, and sometimes I don't think they've actually read the Belfast Agreement, Katie, because the whole idea behind that is to have balance between nationalism and unionism. The constitutional position is that we're part of the United Kingdom until such times as the people of Northern Ireland decide otherwise. So that's a critical point. Uh, and then there has to be this balance uh, in terms of East, West and North, South. Uh, and that's where it's really fallen down under the protocol. You will eventually get a vote on the protocol if it were to stay in place. Is that something that the DUP want to avoid? No, it's not something they want to avoid, but even that vote, um, uh, it's quite technical, but the Secretary of State uh, brought a piece of uh, legislation to Westminster to change the mechanism for voting. So instead of a majority of nationalists and a majority of unionists agreeing uh, to what would happen in relation to the protocol, it's now a majority 
vote. And that goes against the spirit of the Belfast Agreement and really what it was all about. So I really do think there's a need to get that balance back into the Belfast Agreement. It's now 25 years old on the 10th of April. Uh, so I think it is important to recognise what it actually says uh, about balance and about making sure that the both communities in Northern Ireland are, are at peace with what is happening. There is perhaps no perfect solution to the problems that it is politics we've after discovered <laughs> with the protocol. Yeah. Where can the compromise be found? Where is the DUP going to be more willing to compromise? Well, you see, I think um, when you look at what happened with the protocol, there was a fun. If you go back to 2017, and I'm sorry, we have to go back uh, to the Theresa May. We're all going time. back. We're all going back. We're all getting triggered <laughs> by the memories. <laughs> yes, I'm having flashbacks if it's any <laughs> consolation. Um, but if you go back to 2017, there was a fundamental misunderstanding of the Belfast Agreement. So I think the first thing that needs to be done is that there is an understanding of what the agreement actually says about our constitutional position within the United Kingdom and indeed about the fact that there needs to be this balance between the communities in Northern Ireland. I think that the European Union has either been misled or misunderstood what's in the Belfast Agreement. So really what needs to happen is that there's an understanding of that. And once there's an understanding of that, I think we can deal with the trading issues through some of the things that were talked about at that time. You will remember them, alternative arrangements, small business exemptions, uh, trusted traders is something that I've seen mentioned again for the first time in, in years. Uh, so there's a numerous ways that we can deal with the trading issues because of course, the amount of trade that goes across from Northern Ireland into the single European market is very, very small when you look at the proportion compared to the rest of the single European market. But in terms of the GB to Northern Ireland market, that's our main market. That's mm -hmm. where most of our goods circulate within the UK internal market and therefore that needs to be remedied. Well, it's interesting that these old terms are coming up uh, because from memory, the DUP was not very happy about what Boris Johnson negotiated in 2019 yeah. that essentially puts a trade border between Great Britain and Northern Ireland. So are you happy that Rishi Sunak has returned to the table and reopened those negotiations? Oh, well, absolutely. We want him to reopen those negotiations. And more than that, the protocol itself uh, foresees uh, a reopening of uh, the negotiations. I spoke to David Jones, the deputy chair of the ERG last week, and he said he voted for the withdrawal agreement, including the protocol, because he always believed the protocol was temporary. Um, and that is a theme that keeps running now. And actually, it was confirmed uh, in court that it was seen as temporary. So if it's a temporary piece, then surely it can be renegotiated and something different can be put in its place. Arlene, I'm curious to know what Northern Ireland is like at the moment. There have been reports that it's difficult for residents to get the goods and the trade that they normally like to have over from Great Britain. What are the communities feeling? Well, you see, this is the point. Uh, when we the, the outworking of the protocol has actually shown to people in Northern Ireland they are being treated differently than people in Great Britain, um, and they find that very difficult because they are UK citizens as well as the people in Great Britain. Uh, some feel as if they are second-class citizens, actually. They can't get their goods across from various places where they would have went online, ordered stuff, and now they're being told, sorry, we don't deliver to Northern Ireland. And the reason why they don't deliver to Northern Ireland is that it's too much hassle and it's too costly. That can't be right. Surely if the UK single market is to mean anything, it means that everybody can access uh, goods within the market and have them delivered to their homes. So people are angry about that. Uh, on the other hand, and to be fair, you will find that there are some companies who manufacture who want to continue to do business with the European Union. Uh, and for them, they are saying, can we not have dual market access, in other words, within the single market of the United Kingdom, but also have access into the European Union? And the way to do that, uh, as was pointed out by the late David Trimble uh, at the time, of course, the architect of the Belfast Agreement, is to have dual market recognition. In other words, if there is a change in the um, regulations for the EU or for the UK, that you would have that dual market recognition within Northern Ireland. And I think that's a really good way forward. Uh, but we haven't heard anything around that uh, in these negotiations. Mutual recognition was a big point, mm. a big talking point for many Brexiteers, but it always seemed like the EU was mm. hesitant on that point. Um, and from their perspective, they didn't want to dilute their single market status. Mm. 
does it feel like anything shifted from those perspectives? No, I, I have to say I don't feel there has been a great shift in relation to that. If there, if there was a recognition by the European Union that they did value the Belfast Agreement and they did want to see Northern Ireland move on and have devolution back, then I think that that is one of the ways in which they could really stretch themselves and do that. Uh, because as I've said, the leakage into the European single market is so small when you compare it with the overall trading uh, that it wouldn't do any damage to the single market at all. Uh, you've worked with two Prime Ministers on Brexit negotiations, yeah. Theresa May and Boris Johnson. You have an arm's length now from mm. these negotiations, but you know, from the inside and the outside, I suppose, what do you make of Rishi Sunak's negotiating tactics? Well, I was very concerned uh, about the fact that he was um, <clears throat> seemingly conducting these negotiations without actually speaking to the DUP or indeed the other parties in Northern Ireland. Last Friday, he came across. Uh, he gave them, I understand, a sense of where the negotiations were at. But if we are to move forward and to get the DUP to sign up to this deal, and believe you me, that's what I want to see happening because I want to see Northern Ireland uh, with its own devolution and with things working uh, normally within the United Kingdom. Um, if he is to do that, then he must really get alongside uh, them and understand what they want. It's not just looking at words on a page in relation to their seven tests, but to have those conversations with the leadership of the DUP. Uh, I think there's been more engagement this week, uh, but I don't think it's been as much as what is needed. Uh, and I do hope that he realises that if he is to make this a success, because it would be a huge success for him as well, let's not forget that, if he is to make it a success, then he does really need to get alongside the DUP leadership. How much of it comes down to trust? Because it certainly felt like perhaps some was lost between the Conservative Party and the DUP. Oh, I think that's right. After, that's right. after the protocol went ahead in 2019, how much needs to be rebuilt? Well, I think that's absolutely right. And then, of course, there are some uh, here, particularly in London, who see the DUP as an odd bunch um, who uh, they can't really understand. Perhaps that's because they haven't taken the time uh, to understand them. Uh, and that all flows from the confidence and supply agreement as well when the DUP, which I was leading at the time, a female Anglican, it has to be said, but yet I was caricatured in a very particular way. So there is a need for more understanding as to what the DUP wants for the people of Northern Ireland as British citizens living in Northern Ireland. Uh, and I think if people took the time, they would find that there is a willingness to form devolution again. They want to have devolution again. They've always been a devolutionist party. Uh, and to do that, however, they need to have the text in the proper way so that we're protecting the citizens of Northern Ireland as members of the United Kingdom. And Arlene, I want to move away from Brexit and the politics of it for just a moment and ask you about this terrible shooting of a detective chief inspector. Three men have now been arrested uh, for an attempted murder. Well, this is a, an absolutely awful incident because we have a, a police officer, quite a senior police officer, uh, off duty uh, with his son at football training uh, in his local area. He's putting the balls into the back of the car after training and two gunmen come up and start shooting at him. He falls to the ground and they continue to shoot at him. So he is in a very critical uh, position still. I obviously send my prayers uh, to him and his family and indeed to the clinicians who are, are looking after him at this present moment in time. But again, um, it is showing that uh, in regards to policing and the policing families, they do have to continue to be vigilant because there are dissident Republican terrorists out there who will use any opportunity to disrupt Northern Ireland. Uh, and this is a, a murder attempt on, on a police officer's life in front of his own child. So I, I think it's incredibly callous uh, and that young boy will take a lot of time, if ever, to get over watching his father being shot in that way. The police at the moment are reporting that the new IRA is the primary focus of their investigation. And as that investigation goes on, I'm sure we will be updating you. For now, Arlene, thanks so much for joining Spectator TV. Thank you. If you enjoy Spectator TV, why not subscribe to the magazine? You can get 12 weeks of The Spectator in print and online for just £12. On top of that, we'll give you a £20 Amazon gift voucher for free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash TV offer. What kind of person is Shamima Begum? The ISIS bride who recently lost her appeal to return to the UK has divided public opinion over the past few years. Andrew Jury is into extreme tourism and has visited some of the most dangerous parts of the world. 
Just how dangerous does he think Begum is? Andrew joins me now. Andy, thanks for joining Spectator TV. You've written for the magazine this week about the friendship you say that you've built up with Shamima Begum. How did this come about? I think friendship was uh, past tense now because mm. my latest stuff has probably upset her quite a bit. Um, it came about, I was filming a, um, a documentary called Danger Zone, which followed me in my strange life of um, holidays in danger zones. So as a day off from filming, we were close to the road camp where Shamima's kept. Um, and I thought, because there was a lot of journalists had been thrown out, and so they could, she'd said no to everybody. Mm -hmm. So I thought it was a bit of a challenge. So I wanted to go and see her. Um, and not only it was a good story, the um, production company weren't interested in her at all. Um, so went into the camp. But you personally wanted to meet her? Yeah, of course. She's a big story at home. Um, I, I can remember the pictures of seeing her come through the airport with her other two friends. Mm -hmm. And yeah, of course, it was a big story. Um, so I went into the camp expecting to get told to go away, but... Um, I had a pre-plan. Um, I was in a Netflix documentary where I was in an orphanage and it was quite a tear-jerking scene. So I thought it might be a good idea to show that and show my softer side. Um, I, showed, I showed her it. She, she kind of got brought into it. I think she could realise I wasn't one of these hardline newspaper journalists. So she saw me as somebody who was a bit different than she'd seen before. And she accepted me. Um, and the interview which I had with her wasn't the general about the heads in the bins, the um, suicide vest. It was generally about her, about you know what, what she used to do in her life when she was younger, what was her interest. And she bought into it, and then she liked me. Mm. Um, and as I, the bit I still regret now, as I went to leave, I said, "Can I shake your hand?" She, I didn't want to offend her because she was a Muslim. Um, I offered my hand. She said, "Can I have a hug?" Um, she gave me a hug and she started to cry. I've never seen emotion before. I don't know now whether that was orchestrated by herself as it went along, but that made some sort of bond. I got a daughter her age, so I didn't see her at that point as a terrorist. I saw her as a victim. Um, in my mind, she was, she was groomed and at that point, and kind of that was about it. I never expected to ever see her again, um, and I left but how wrong I was. I want to go into that full story, but first, I think a lot of viewers will be wondering what exactly an extreme holiday is, because this was certainly not the first or last time you went on one. Mm. What does that entail? <laughs> entails being pretty stupid and going places okay. where everybody advises you not to go. The government advised you not to go, though I generally went there. Right. So it's taken me from to Chechnya, it's taken me Ku Klux Klan, um, frontline oh battle um, in Kirkuk. I've been taken hostage only for a day, and they bought me a kebab. Oh, that makes but, it okay. But, and then rescuing a bear recently in war-torn Ukraine. So that's not your general holiday. And are, are you an adrenaline junkie? Is that what you're seeking? It was, it, it was until the media took over, yeah. I liked the adrenaline, liked the buzz. And I also like to tell people's story. When you come back, I, I always enjoyed relaying somebody's story right. through myself. Then I had the medium of newspapers to do that. Mm -hmm. And I enjoyed, I just enjoy that. Um, well, uh, this extreme holiday took you to Shamima and you visited her many times at the refugee camp afterwards. What is it like in this prison camp? What are the conditions like? Compared to a refugee camp, which I've been through in Raqqa before, it's not bad. I don't think it's, it's, a, it's a concrete in the middle of a, a concrete bases with tents with kind of UN plastic sheeting made into a tent form. Shamima's got a TV in her room. She's got a fan of air conditioning. I don't know where she's getting the money, but and she has, and she's quite well dressed. But the, it's, it's a dusty, dirty place. They've got a shopping area um, where they can go and buy her clothes and baby, because there's a lot of children in there as well, so baby food, foods. So they have money. They I don't know how they earn it, because she never told me. At the prison camp, it's split into two. So you've got the real extreme up the top end of the camp, which they don't think they can be de radicalized They're up there because they're, and they don't really mix with the more Western girls, um, which are on the other side, which is supposed to be a little bit easier. And you said at the start of our interview that you think you were wrong in terms of your first impression of Shamima. What changed during your visits? Um, well, on my second visit, um, she told, I, I knew that she could have a phone call home. She was entitled to one phone call one week. Um, and I thought that'd be from the office, there's an administration office in there, but she said they got mobile phones in the camp. So I gave her my mobile number expecting a phone call, but I got text messages regular. 
And one of those text messages changed everything about her. I mean, I had a, a brother died um, of cancer young, so I always kept that with me and it never left me. And when I was there on my second visit, in her purse she has these two pictures, and the third one for her, her children. The oldest child, I think it was about eight months when it died, had chocolate around his face, and it was like a happy scene of cake making. Um, and I was quite upset by it because a child, obviously an innocent child, had died. Um, and it was eight months old. So I text, sent a message to her, a text message, and said, look, I was really sad when I saw that photograph of your, your little one. And that her response shocked me. She said, oh, don't worry, I'm over that part of my life. It doesn't make me sad anymore. And that, I still can't understand. I'd say, living with death myself of a young child, I, could, I just couldn't fathom how she could be that way and how it seems so cold. It seems extremely cold. I can't fathom it either. That said, we have not grown up in an ISIS community. We haven't had the experiences she had. Do you think perhaps this was her way of deflecting what is overwhelming and inconsolable pain? People always mention the trauma of what she went through. According to her in a documentary, never went for anybody. She was stuck in a room for seven months, didn't do anything, stayed in and had no trauma. It was only during the bombing at the end when Bagus actually got taken out by the Western Alliance that she actually had any trauma, according to her. So I know I don't agree with that. I still think you'd hold the emotions. I mean, if you were in a traumatic situation, your children got killed, I don't, I don't agree with that at all. Do you still see her as a victim on any level? Um, trafficking or um, a victim of grooming? Mm. Um, I asked her, and she, ironically, I, I watched the documentary again, stopped trying to refer back to that, but she said that she had trouble um, fitting in uh, society, she um, racially, she, she had racist, racist abuse, and racially she find difficult um, to fit into her community. Well, she lived in a Bangladeshi community, so that would have been untrue. And the question about racism, she, she, I asked her about that, um, and she said she'd only had one small racist comment when she was in um, infant school. So I was quite shocked. So I don't think she was groomed. And then we, we've seen a video and that video shown of the, the park, everybody knows about the ISIS video, propaganda video, where you see this beautiful scene, this park, and they've got a Catherine wheel, um, bumper cars, and they're walking around with candy floss. Now, if that was the one video that she watched, um, to, uh, the grooming video, it's, it's not true. I want to talk about the screaming point a bit more because um, I think one of the most startling points of, of your article for The Spectator is you say, I spent with uh, the time you spent with her, quote, I also went from thinking that she had been groomed to thinking she was trying to groom me. Yeah. How do you understand the definition of grooming in that scenario? Um, it's a difficult one, isn't it? It's changing somebody's beliefs and I or persuasion. And I think she was doing that with me. I think, I think she was try, um, trying to work me. I suppose, I mean, her side would be worked by ISIS to, um, to change her opinion, to say that she was going to go to a utopic situation. Um, I suppose grooming with me, with me was conditioned me to her belief, conditioned me towards how she was. I think critics, however, would say that somebody in your position with a family, stability, yeah. the ability to travel, is not a hot contender to be groomed, whereas she, um, you know, despite the, the horrible things that she owns up to doing and, and, you know, needs to be accountable for, was ultimately a child and under UK law would have been a victim of at least rape. Um, I think that's 15 year olds always been used so many times it's you could say that about a child that kills I mean is everybody innocent at the age of 15 I don't think so she could still have the thoughts um, I think she went on her own free will I don't think she was coaxed another girl called because most people think it was only three girls it was four the girl that went before um, Shamina Shamina went before and I think it was just a conversation I I don't think she did realize how extreme it would be I would say that for sure but she still had an anti-British, anti-West feeling. Mm. Do you think perhaps she saw you as somebody who could help her get back to the UK? And when she realized that you couldn't or wouldn't, that's when her attitude towards you changed? No, her attitude changed toward me when I wrote a newspaper article in the paper that she didn't like. Right. So I, I wrote an article, came back and said that she could face trial and do 20 years in prison. The newspaper article, I won't say the newspaper unless you want me to, stated that she could be hung. I never said that. So once again, the paper wrote the article wrong, um, and which, which I got them to apologise for, and they apologised to the SDF. 
but however it was wrong and I said to Shamima sorry the article was wrong it wasn't what I wrote and I sent her the actual transcript of the right article but she come back and said it doesn't matter about the article don't care what article it was it's who what paper you put it in my response to her goes well you sold your country out you worry about where I sold a newspaper article and that was the last I heard of her you say in the piece that you, quote, never had an agenda when you met Shamima. No. You did help other journalists with their interviews. Yeah, I did. To, to interview Shamima and yeah. other ISIS brides. Were you paid for the support that you gave those I journalists? I have received a penny from any work I've done for Shamima at all. But do you th were, were you paid for helping other journalists get in touch with other ISIS brides when you were in the area? No, I haven't no. paid any money at all for anything I've done within that prison camp. Do you think her perception of you might have also changed when she saw you were working with other journalists? No, she actually liked it. I mean, the um, Good Morning Britain um, live interview, She, apart from having a tantrum halfway through it, um, she seemed to like it. And then I took others after that, and she liked that. It was simply because... I think she had a documentary made about her and I think she might have been manipulated by that journalist not to speak to anybody else. Shamima has just lost her appeal to return to the UK. Yeah. What do you make of that decision? Have the courts made the uh, right call? Um, no, I don't. Um, I don't think you should be... If you were born in this country, I don't think you should be able to take somebody's citizenship away from them. I don't think you can. You're British, you're born British. It doesn't matter what generation of British your parents are, you're born in this country, and I don't think it's right. I think she should have come back, face trial here, for her crimes. I think we have enough evidence, or they have enough evidence, and I think that's what should happen. She should come here and serve prison sentence here. Mm. Um, feeling about her, because I know her so well, last time she had a, um, an appeal turned down in the High Court, she was suicidal. You were there at the time, I weren't was. you, with I, her? I, I spoke to her. Um, within hours or within days of that being turned down and she told me how suicidal she felt and how flat she felt and as a human being see it's a mixed emotions because when you actually I, I, I don't hate her but I just don't like what she stood for and I don't like the way that she's gone but however as a person I don't want someone in the camp a young girl to be sitting worried about you know or, or contemplating committing suicide because I feel terribly guilty if I was part of anything to do with that. Does Shamima have any more options in trying to come to the UK? She, um, her options are, well, she's got the Court of Human Rights. Uh, Solicitor said they're going to appeal, they can appeal against the SEAC Court's decision. But ultimately, even if she gets a citizenship some way um, back, then I would suggest that they'll probably try her in Syria. I don't think the government are allowed to come here. Because if you can imagine a, a government that repatriates, so it would be a real com uncomfortable situation. Mm. There's such a, um, I think, such a adverse feeling towards Shamima. I, th I don't think it would be a good thing for any government to bring it back. So I think it's a possibility she could go to trial in Syria for about 20 years. I think she could get that. Andy, thanks for joining me. Kate Forbes, recently the frontrunner for the SNP leadership race, has plummeted in the polls after a tough week, facing questions about her religious views. A devout member of the Free Church of Scotland, Forbes personally believes that having children out of wedlock is wrong, as is gay marriage. But should it matter what someone in politics thinks in their private life? David Robertson, who is also part of the Free Church, writes for The Spectator's website this week, and he joins me now. David, thanks for joining Spectator TV. Tell us about the Free Church of Scotland, which has been in the news this week. As of the past few weeks, a lot of people didn't really know about it. Yeah, there, there are people who would know a kind of caricature where we're nicknamed the wee frees and the idea is that, you know, we're a bunch of dear, miserable Scottish Calvinists who live on the island, speak Gaelic and never do anything on a Sunday. The caricature is the only time the Free Church would get in the news is if we announced that our policy on the nuclear bomb was we didn't want them to drop it on a Sunday. So there's a caricature thing of that. But in the 21st century, the Free Church, somewhat surprisingly, has grown. And uh, I would say it's a, a conservative theologically, but not conservative politically. You, you can't confuse those two things. Um, it group of about 100 churches, about 13,000 attenders, um, growing in the cities, uh, declining in some other areas. But uh, 
Yeah, it's, it's a Bible-believing, conservative, theologically Presbyterian church. And can we break that down? We now know, know that Kate Forbes, uh, the SNP candidate for First Minister, is a part of it. And you've repeated this phrase, theologically conservative. What exactly does that mean? It means that we accept the Bible for what it is. Now, people say, do you mean literally? Well, it, it, it literally depends what they mean by literally. So when Jesus says, I'm a door, he doesn't mean he's wooden and got a handle. But what we mean is that we, we believe every word of the Bible is true, that we read it in context, in the different genres, but we think it applies to today. So we're very, uh, very much a Bible-based church. Um, some people want to use the pejorative fundamentalist. I don't agree. I, I think all of us have fundamental beliefs anyway. Um, we think that we need to apply the Bible to modern life. Um, what we don't think we have the liberty to do is to pick and choose which bits of the Bible we like. Um, I think it was St. Augustine who said, if you believe in the Bible what you like and leave out what you don't like, it's not the Bible you believe, but yourself. So um, I, I think that there are people who like to mock us as being somewhat ignorant. Um, I think one of the problems in the UK is we are so influenced by American media that when people hear the word Bible-believing or something, they tend to think of Southern redneck evangelical, which I think is a bit unfair on the Southern uh, people <laughs> as well, but it's a caricature. And so they, 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 they tend to think of that except in Scottish terms. You've written a piece for Coffee House uh, on the Spectator's website. And in that piece, you mentioned that Humza Yusuf hasn't been taken to task about his faith. But he was asked on yeah. BBC Radio 4 whether he thinks gay marriage and gay sex are wrong. So why do you think that this issue is specific to Christians? Oh, I don't think it is. I think Homsa Yusuf, it's Ian McWhorter, who's an atheist, uh, the Scottish um, journalist, brilliant writer, who said, uh, basically, Homsa Yusuf and Kate Forbes both belong to religions that condemn uh, homosexuality and gay marriage, or homosexual practice, at least in, in Christianity and, and gay marriage. And uh, uh, the, the difference, said McWhorter, is that one of them's a hypocrite and one of them's a believer. Um, I, I think that what was done with Kate Forbes was an absolute hatchet job. Everybody knew what she believed, and it's utterly irrelevant. I mean, here we are today, Humza Yousaf has just had a report about the National Health Service in Scotland, which is devastating about his management. People are dying because of that, and that's not what people are interested in. They're interested in a hypothetical of Kate Forbes, who was 20 at the time when the same-sex marriage stuff went through the Scottish Parliament, how she would have voted. There is no possibility of the Scottish Parliament voting on same-sex marriage in the next two parliaments at least. So, I mean, this is very much a hatchet job. And I think this is really unfair. People are having a go at Kate Forbes for something, holding a position that, to be honest, a third of people in the UK still hold, and that was the normal position in society up until about five minutes ago. Humza Yusuf has been challenged on specifics in the Quran, and he has suggested that his progressive beliefs, he feels, can gel with his religious beliefs. Kate Forbes has been asked, as you say, about how she would have voted on gay marriage when she was a very young woman. But is the bigger question here not how she would have voted on gay marriage, but what's going to happen when other social issues come up? in Holyrood. Because whilst you say in your piece that Kate Forbes has said that her beliefs would not change how she votes, she has hinted quite strongly that had she had that vote back in the day, it would have affected her vote. And perhaps the question for Scottish voters is what else might come up? I mean, the trans issue is still very much on the table in Scotland, with which she would use her personal religious leanings to legislate. That to me is the ultimate question for every candidate. Well, the ultimate question, actually, it's not just personal religious beliefs. Everyone has philosophical religious beliefs, everyone. So the, the, the question is, to what extent do your personal beliefs affect things? Now, you mentioned the GRR. That's a, that's a great one. Um, Two-thirds of Scottish people actually agree with Kate Forbes on this. Isn't it ironic that we live, I mean, I, f I find this almost laughable, that we live in a world in which when a candidate is asked what is a transgender woman said a transgender woman is a biological man who wants to live as a woman and she has been reported to the NEC of the SNP for hate speech and what's interesting about that is Humza Yousaf is the man who passed the hate speech laws in Scotland which would mean that in theory 
she could go to jail for actually saying something that is biologically, scientifically and rationally true. So I actually don't agree that um, when someone says my beliefs won't affect how I vote, of course they will. Kate Forbes passionately, passionately believes because of her time in India where her parents were serving in a charity for the poor, that she needs to do the best she can to help the poor. She passionately believes that. She passionately believes in justice. So I, I think it's very foolish to say you, you wouldn't allow your beliefs to affect. They certainly do. I'm, I'm, I have to say, I'm not sure at all what Humza believes. To, to pick up on that point then, isn't the question for Scottish voters, because she is being very honest and very clear about what she believes, <laughs> what the trade-offs are for them? Because as you say, the majority of Scottish voters happen to agree with Kate Forbes on the trans issue. Plenty of them will agree with her on the independence issue and lots of other issues. I'm sure there are a lot of people out there who will be nervous about um, the concept of, of hate speech and, and what can and cannot be said that could potentially land you in prison, and certainly the way it's being interpreted today. But Lots of people will disagree with her about the rights for gay people to get married or her comments about having children outside of marriage. And they're weighing up which side they're more comfortable with. I mean, there are trade-offs here. And that's something that, if you know, in your own words, Kate Forbes is going to use her own beliefs as she, if she were to become first minister. Isn't, don't the Scottish people have the right to then weigh that up and say, well, I agree with this, I disagree with this. And, you know, they might decide that the disagreements outweigh the agreements. I, I agree completely. And I think the Scottish people should decide that. Who should not decide that is the Twitterati, and I'm sorry to say this, but journalists. So right now, what I'm hearing from people, so I know that uh, a, a couple of days ago, thousands of messages of support were pouring in for Kate Forbes. Um, I know that Nicola Sturgeon has got involved today because she's really shocked that, that Kate Forbes has not banked, not banked down. I would suggest to you that um, this is almost like a Jacob Rees-Mogg moment. Do you remember that time when Jacob Rees-Mogg was asked on, I think it was on ITV, Good Morning, what do you think about abortion? And he said, well, I'm against it. And you could almost see the journalist salivating. I've got him. He's dead. You know. And at the end of that, I remember that... Um, the Guardian, I think, the next day ran a headline which ineffectively said Jacob Rees-Mogg finished. Well, in the in the Westminster bubble and in the Holyrood bubble, that's true. But in the world of real people, he wasn't. And I know pen, plenty of people, his popularity soared in the following weeks because there were plenty of people who said, I don't agree with him, but oh my goodness, thank God for an honest politician. And I think Kate Forbes, the, the irony here is we have people asking about a policy, and politicians should be judged on their policy. If you're going to judge people on their character, again, with all due respect, Boris Johnson would never get in, you know, and I think uh, most politicians. We, we've had a bizarre situation in Scotland here where experts have been saying, if only she'd lied, done what Tim Farron did, which Tim Farron now bitterly regrets, which was a very foolish thing. I think the people who are at fault here are the people who are constantly asking her about gay sex and same-sex marriage none of which is relevant to the policies that the Scottish government will be dealing with over the next few years. The business community love her. If you ask the business community who they want, the Tories, by the way, I'll tell you this, I, I know this from speaking to many Tories, Tory leaders, they kind of like Cape Forbes, but they're desperate that she doesn't get elected because if she gets elected, the Tories are finished in Scotland because she will win a lot of Tory votes. I guess my last question to you is that perhaps the difference between Jacob Rees-Mogg and Kate Forbes is that Jacob Rees-Mogg has never put himself forward for the top job. And by doing that, naturally, it comes with all kinds of new scrutiny. And as you say, it's for the people of Scotland to decide, it's for the SNP to decide who they want to lead the country. But if they are curious about the answers to her questions about, for example, what she thinks of having a child outside of marriage, is it not right that she's asked the question so they at least get their answer and can make an informed decision? No, because that's not the basis on which normal people make their decisions. Well, what we're concerned be, about in Scotland very, very, should very be... Quickly, very quickly, it might be when it comes to how would she legislate for welfare? How would she treat single-parent families? What is the SNP going to do I, for I, these I, people? Are these not legitimate questions to know what she thinks from first principles? Absolutely, but that's not what they're doing. You see, when, when that question is being asked, it's being asked as a gotcha question. Kate Forbes, more than anyone else in the SNP leadership, is talking about poverty and everything else. That's her concern. When she's asked what is best for a child, she says, well, I think it's best for a child to grow up with a mother and father. Virtually every study uh, agrees with that. 
Now, the, the, the degradation of the family is what has devastated Scotland. I used to work in housing estates in Dundee. And, you know, I'd do kids camps and 19 out of the 20 kids, you couldn't say to them, go home to your mum and dad. They were growing up fatherless or they were growing up. Now, that, that is to say that something is the best is not to denigrate single mothers. And I think it's slanderous to imply that because Kate Forbes thinks it's best for a child to grow up with two parents, that she's attacking single parents. I don't think that's true at all. I think she will do more welfare for the poor. I mean, the SNP have been a disaster for the poor in Scotland. And I know because my city was Dundee. But she, she is in the SNP. I mean, the, the party you're criticising is also... Um, the party that Kate Forbes is representing. Yes, absolutely. And, and uh, believe you me, I, although Kate Forbes is a member of my church, if, if she was, uh, if she, I think the last chance for the SNP, by the way, is Kate Forbes. If the SNP want to commit suicide, they will. And they'll do it because of religion, but not because of Christianity, because of the green progressive religion, which has taken over people's minds here. We had a first minister of Scotland who, when asked if a rapist was a uh, a man or a woman could not answer. Now, I'm sorry, that made us the laughing stock of the world. I'm here in Australia, and, and people were just thinking, is this a Monty Python skit? Because it was so ridiculous. So I think Kate Forbes, people may not like her social views. A lot of people do. But I think it's deeply unfair that she's being condemned for her social views when other people's social views are not being discussed. And I think it's even worse that the real policies are not being discussed. So she should be challenged on how you're going to pay for independence. And so should all the other the candidates. I'm a supporter of independence, by the way, so I'll confess to that. But I still think that they've never answered that. They need to be challenged on the NHS. They need to be challenged on education. Scotland has the worst drugs deaths in Europe, if not the world. And that needs to be challenged on that. By the way, you said something very, very interesting. I need to, need to deal with this. You said going to the top job. I'm a Democrat. Um, and to be honest, I'm pretty well a Republican as well. And I'm far more left-wing than most of these so-called progressives who are not progressive at all. They're a bunch of rich kids who've been indoctrinated with some stuff from Harvard and Yale and Oxford and Cambridge and think it's wonderful and think they can keep their millions and then say that they're billionaire socialists or something. I'm not like that. I think that we should have a proper democracy. I don't care if Kate Forbes is an MP, a leader, a finance minister, or, or, you know, the first minister, to me in Scotland, and I think in the UK, we, we don't have a presidential system. I, I don't want somebody who you go, oh, that's our great leader. Um, I think Nicola Sturgeon governed like that, and I think it's been a disaster. She has left my country absolutely devastated. I think Kate Forbes has a slight possibility of being able to rebuild it precisely because of her Christian values. Kate Forbes was interviewed recently, and I saw her, five questions on sex. You know, what nerve? I mean, people go, oh, you Christians are all obsessed by sex. We're not obsessed by it. It's the media that are obsessed by sex. Nothing about industry, nothing about farming, nothing about education, nothing about the NHS. And I know what the people of Scotland care more about. And it's certainly not progressive issues that seem to, this bubble that people seem to live in, that they're not the issues that we're concerned about. David, thanks for joining me. And finally, this week the Welsh Government declared a war on meal deals as part of its latest drive to tackle obesity, the £3.50 on-the-go lunch may be restricted. A self-confessed meal deal addict and The Spectator's social media editor, Lucy Dunn, is with me now to defend them. Lucy, thanks for joining Spectator TV. So you write for the magazine this week that Wales is eyeing the meal deal as its next nanny state crackdown. And this is a particularly emotive issue for you. Yes, as I mean, for as long as I can remember, I have eaten meal deals for at least one, if not two, meals a day. Um, obviously, this does come with breaks if I go out for dinner, but it's important that you had to caveat yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> but generally speaking, in the day-to-day -day routine, you are hitting those meal deals at least once a day. Absolutely. Um, usually Tesco tends to be the one that I go for, sometimes Sainsbury's if um, there's not Tesco around. But I, I have found out the best places to go and for me the best combinations. Obviously I'm going to want to hear all about those as are our viewers. But first I want to know how you got into this meal deal routine. Uh, was it born of some kind of necessity to your schedule? Because of course you were practicing as a junior doctor before you joined The Spectator. Yeah, when I was studying medicine I had loads of exams and I didn't like to take breaks from the library very often, so when I did, I would jump to Tesco and 
as I say, buy myself a sandwich, a snack and a drink and it would be consumed with about five minutes and that's me back to the library again. So. And as a student as well, that price point is pretty good. You, you talk in the magazine piece about the different price points, they can range up to a fiver. Absolutely. I mean, I would always stick to around about the £3.50 mark. Right. Um, you think that's the best deal of the meal deals? I think so. I think so. I mean, now, I mean, the Tesco have upped their price considerably, so I'm tempted to move away from them. Um, but equally, I think at the time, I thought £3.50 for a lunch deal is actually pretty decent, given that other places, if you go out for lunch, could be up to £10, if not more. Inflation is hitting everything. So talk me through the best meal deals. I mean, obviously, I've had a meal deal in my day. Most people have. <laughs> but I can't say that I have studied them and gotten to know the meal deal quite as well as you have. So talk me through the best options. Um, well, for me, I am not particularly fussed whether it's cold food or hot food. So um, I often just go for... Uh, chicken Caesar salad wrap sometimes. I go for a salmon and cream cheese um, sandwich as well. Those kind of things really appeal to me. Um, sometimes a pack of fruit on the side, sometimes a yogurt, sometimes a pack of crisps. Sounds I mean, like you can really mix it up That's here. That's the beauty of the meal deal. I think you can just literally every single time you go, you don't need to have the same thing. Okay, but um, was it always this way? And you talk about the history of the meal deal in your piece, and I'm not asking you to go back many, many years. You know, you wouldn't <laughs> have experienced that. Um, but talk a little bit about its rise, and then is it a recent thing that they've offered so many options? So the meal deal was pioneered by Boots, funnily enough, in 1985. So, so not a supermarket. Not a supermarket, and yeah, a pharmacy. So you, you know, that's quite surprising. Um, but it took off amazingly, um, and I think people found that the convenience aspect of it really appealed to them. After that, it expanded M&S, um, Tesco, as I say, Sainsbury's, and Waitrose have one as well. Um, and with the expansion to different supermarkets came all the different items you can get. You can now buy pasta as your main or sushi. Um, so yeah, I think the, the choice is fantastic. And you talk a little bit about how they're even appealing to breakfast. Yeah, I mean, this is the thing. So we've got sandwiches that offer egg and bacon, avocado. And if you think about what you'd have on a full English breakfast, it's not that dissimilar, only it's put between two slices of bread, so. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, look, you've sold the meal deal really, really well, but it, you know, if, if you were to do an even bigger pitch here, to be having it once or twice a day is obviously <laughs> a real commitment to the meal deal cause. Um, do you not like doing dishes? Is it the cooking <laughs> element that you find quite frustrating? I have never been an amazing cook. I think that probably is my downfall. Um, I mean, equally, That's okay, that's okay. We all have different <laughs> skills and talents. I think I, I'm not, and again, I don't necessarily subscribe to needing to have a hot meal for dinner, right. um, which is probably why I do sometimes stop by Tesco on my way home, way, especially it takes me about half an hour on the tube to get yeah. back. So why not have dinner then? And once I get home, I've got more time for anything else I want to do. Very pragmatic. <laughs> um, I mean, why is Wales targeting the meal deal? I, I, I know that the claim is that they're not particularly healthy, but they're a lot healthier than other things you can buy in the supermarket, especially as you say, if there's so much choice now, you know, if, if you, it's not just crisps, it's not just chocolate. Um, I mean, why are they targeting the meal deal? And, and what slippery slope is this? What it, you know, if you ban the meal deal, ban all sandwiches, where does this end? Well, exactly. I think that they're obviously with the way the meal deal works, you can get things in different combinations. Obviously, there's going to be a combination that is the most unhealthy, um, and I think that's what people are really focusing on. There's combinations of sandwiches, crisps and drinks that can reach up to an over a thousand calories, mm -hmm. um, which you probably should try and avoid for if you're having three meals a day. Um, but equally, you can also have meal deals that are exceptionally healthy, and that's what I like about, you know, it, it makes sure you've got sandwiches that offer chicken and um, seafood and that, you know, your protein intake and you have to have water on the side and fruit on the side. So for me, I think that the, the, the whole sort of mindset, between, you know, for banning this meal deal is a bit ludicrous given that you can make it healthy and it should be up to individual choice. I don't also think that people are going to turn around and become healthy overnight when the meal deal disappears because right. if people are going to Tesco for convenience, then why not simply switch to McDonald's or KFC or, some or just the bigger chain. bag of crisps. Yeah, exactly. So. Yeah. Now, I don't want to unnecessarily upset you, but I am going to ask a, a difficult question. If they were to ban the meal deal, and I appreciate you're not living in Wales, but let's say, hypothetically speaking, this were extended to you, what would you do without it? Gosh, it's something that I've not really wanted to think about too much. Sure. That I do really rely on this as something to get me through my, my life, basically, for the It'd past It'd be a big lifestyle change. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> For me, I think I probably would have to take up cooking and I might just have to revert to making my own sandwiches 
or alternatively find some other fast, convenient way of having lunch and, and budget. <laughs> do you think? Do you think it's the sandwich then in particular? I mean, would you get in that bread? Would you make the sandwich? Is that do you think what you would most miss? I think yeah. For me, I think the sandwich is something that does definitely appeal with the meal deal. I've spoken to colleagues who are absolutely shocked by this. Um, I've spoken to colleagues who don't like sandwiches at all, which I find also completely shocking. That is shocking. Um, but I, yeah, I think that for me, it's it is, it's fast, it's it's easy, it's quick, and you can there's so many different types of things you can put into a sandwich. So. I, yeah, I would miss it massively and I don't know what I would do. Well, Lucy, I seriously hope that you get some kind of endorsement out of this segment because I think you're the best representative they have. Thanks for joining Spectator TV. Thank you. And that's it for this week. If you enjoy Spectator TV, subscribe to our YouTube channel. Just click the subscribe button at the bottom of this video and tap the bell icon to make sure you never miss any of our videos. Thanks again for watching and do join us again next week.